Thank you for visiting Crossland Community Church. We are located in Terre Haute, Indiana. For more information, please visit us online at coccchurch.com. Let's listen to one of our Sunday morning messages. couple things I want to start off just so you're aware of. Um, my wife and I are expecting our first child. She was due on Tuesday. Still hasn't uh, happened yet. So I've got my phone in my pocket. And if the thing starts vibrating, I will lose all control of my bodily functions and run out of the building. So just so you're aware, if that happens, we'll wrap it up somehow. But um, I told Jenny, you know, when it didn't happen on Tuesday, I said, you know, just, just be patient. 
Yeah, you don't say that to a pregnant lady, um, especially when she's overdue. You're not carrying this thing around. So anyway, uh, just so you're aware of that, the second thing I need to make you aware of, and, and I am fully aware of my own faults, uh, and this is one of them, I am obsessed with the subject matter that I'm talking to you about this morning. Uh, It's freakish. I get into American history and this type of stuff, the the Founding Fathers, more than really any human being ever should. So please just pacify me. Please patronize me. Make it appear as though you actually care as well, and this will go very smoothly for all of us, all right? Uh, We begin this morning our series, America's Foundation of Faith, looking at the foundations of this culture as to whether or not we're still on that path, and if not, if there's any way to get back onto that path, and whether we want to to begin with. The first thing that we need to do, and the first part of this presentation, this series, is an entire presentation on the faith of the founding fathers themselves. There's so much controversy and so much discussion about whether these men were Christians or were not Christians. And you've got people on both sides of the issue that are arguing and saying all of these things. Well, I want to do something that commonly we don't do anymore, and that is actually look at what these men said for themselves. If we're going to talk about the founding fathers, though, we have to understand who we're talking about. Typically, when you talk about the founding fathers of the United States, you're talking about maybe the 56 signers of the Declaration of Independence, maybe the 55 guys that went to the Constitutional Convention, or the 39 that stuck around and actually signed the dumb thing. It's not dumb. Well, I've already insulted everybody. All right, it's not a dumb thing. Signed the document. This is typically who we think of with the Founding Fathers. But I want you to note that there are a lot of other figures in colonial America, whether they were ministers, whether they were lawyers or state legislators or or governors. Uh, These guys, too, would be considered Founding Fathers. And so what's my point? My point is this. When you start saying the Founding Fathers believe this, That's a really difficult statement to make because what you find is that Alexander Hamilton thought one thing about taxation and Thomas Jefferson thought something completely different. So to suggest the founding fathers believed this, well, which founding father are you talking about? It becomes very difficult because they're not a monolithic group. But, and this is a very key point, so wake up. You've already fallen asleep. Come on, back with me right here. This is a huge point that I want you to grasp. Even though this is not a monolithic group, there are certain key principles key foundational fundamental philosophies, it's a lot of F's, uh, and and, and worldviews and beliefs that these men all shared. And when it came to their worldview, when it came to the question of Christian principle and what ideology should shape and mold the future of American society, this was something the founding fathers agreed upon. Now the logical question is, why does this matter? Why are we talking about this? I had a caller to my radio show that asked me this question in a rather blunt way. They said, okay, maybe you're right. Maybe the founding fathers were Christians, but why does it matter? These were his words, not mine. What a bunch of old dead white guys thought? Well, I could have probably said it more tactfully, but I think it's a legitimate question. I think it's a good question. Why does it matter what a bunch of people 230 years ago thought about something? Why does that matter to us today? Folks, if you've been conscious over the course of the last decade, all right, if you've been here on this planet the last decade, you realize that what we're facing in American culture is an agenda. It's a movement of the secular progressives, the secular humanist left that that loathes Christian principle. They loathe anything that has to do with Christian principle. They don't want peaceful coexistence with Christians. They want to destroy the entire concept of a Judeo-Christian principle. And their agenda is hampered by this notion of traditional morality. If some Somebody says, well, I, I don't want this child inside me. I'm going to destroy this life inside me. Okay, why? Why can they do that? Well, because I make up truth for myself. Don't you push your truth off on me. If I want to marry somebody of the same sex, I'm going to do it because I make up truth and reality for myself. You may not believe that, and that may be fine for you. You just don't marry somebody of the other sex. Don't want an abortion? Don't have one. This philosophy.
philosophy, which by the way, an easy response to that is don't want slaves, don't own one. I mean, it's just illogical to make this kind of an argument, but this is what we hear all the time, that we make up truth for ourselves. That's what the secular humanist left is preaching today. And the one thing that stands in the way of it, it's people like you and I. People with traditional morality that says there's absolute moral truth, there's right and there's wrong, there are some things that are good, there's some things that are bad, and that's the one thing that the secular left can't handle. They must destroy that notion of a Judeo-Christian ethic that teaches this principle of a right and a wrong, that there is a moral accountability for all people. They have to get rid of that for their agenda to take a foothold. By the way, I'm fully aware of what I am. You don't have to tell me. I've been told plenty of times I'm a radical right-wing Christian fundamentalist extremist nut job. I get that, okay? You don't have to tell me that. So because of that, since I am a radical right-wing Christian fundamentalist extremist nut job, you can tell I've heard it a few times because I've got it ingrained. Since I am, don't take my word for it. I, that's the, that's That's what I'm begging you to do. Don't trust me. Let these people speak for themselves. I'm telling you that the secular progressives, the secular humanist left, wants to replace the Judeo-Christian ethic. Let them speak for themselves. Humanist manifesto. The humanist stated purpose is to effect a cultural revolution by substituting humanism for Christianity as the cultural foundation of America. They're saying it themselves. You don't have to trust me. And by the way, this is what I call an oops moment. This happens every so often when the humanists are making their arguments. They accidentally acknowledge something that they don't really want to acknowledge. Look at this quote. The humanist stated purpose is to effect a cultural revolution by substituting humanism for Christianity as the cultural foundation of America. What does that statement implicitly acknowledge? It acknowledges that, yes, Christianity was the cultural foundation of America. The one thing that they say isn't true... Uh, she's already had enough. She's leaving on me. Okay, that's all right. People are, by the way, you've probably learned you never stand up, you never blow your nose, you never sneeze, you never do anything when Peter's speaking because I'll call you out. Anyway, um, so what was I saying? I've completely lost uh, my train of thought. Yes, so uh, the, the, I was electrocuted earlier this morning, so I'm a little bit jumpy. Uh, the, the humanist, the only way this sentence makes sense, the only way this is logical, is if Christianity was that cultural foundation. You can't substitute something for something else unless that something else was already there to begin with. They are implicitly acknowledging that Christianity really was there. I just noticed you move this rug. That's spectacular. Earlier, I was walking back and forth so much, I bowled it up into this giant lump by the end of the service, and it distracted me. I almost fell down. It was ugly. All right, so anyway, this is what the humanists have said themselves. But what's their problem? What's their big dilemma? This is their dilemma. Their dilemma is America's great success. I want you to stop and think about it. Do you realize that this country, the poorest among us in this country, eats better than 90% of the world? Stop and think about that. The poorest in this country eats better than 90% of the world. You've got a missions team. Uh, Tracy and I didn't get along at all last year, and that's why he decided to leave the country the week that I'm coming here. But anyway, ask those people on that mission trip. Ask them about it, about what true poverty is like. They're in Haiti, for crying out loud. The poorest people here eat better than 90% of the rest of the world. We don't have any concept of what it is to be in want in this country. We are, and you saw it in the video, the most prosperous people that have ever existed in the history of mankind. So here's the question. How do you convince millions of Americans that this Judeo-Christian ethic, this Christian principle that the founding fathers used as the cultural foundation of America, how do you convince them that this foundation that made us the most prosperous people in the history of the world needs to be changed? How do you have that argument to say, well, you know, we've become the most prosperous people in the world, but I tell you what, let's switch it and go with something like the Soviet Union had because that worked out pretty well for them. How do you make that argument to people? Here's the answer, folks. Here's the answer. You don't convince them of that. You merely convince them that that foundation never truly existed in the first place. 
You don't try to argue with George Washington and Alexander Hamilton and John Adams. You just convince people by educating them this way that John Adams and George Washington and Alexander Hamilton never really believed those things in the first place. And then you don't have to substitute one for the other. Thus, the assault on the faith of the founding fathers. I experienced this firsthand. This discussion will amaze me. Uh, Every time I look back on it, I had an on-air debate with the president of an organization, and I'm not mispronouncing the name of this organization. She's the president of the group Freedom From Religion Foundation. Not Freedom Of Religion, Freedom From Religion Foundation. We had this debate on air about this very topic. Take a look at a portion of it. Are all religions, in, in your organization's mind, are they on the same plane of moral equivalence? If, if I made the argument to you, some religions, let's say the Christian religion, is more hospitable, more friendlier towards life, liberty, and property than another religion, do, do you believe that it's inappropriate for someone in a position of governmental authority to suggest that, okay, Christian principle is more appropriate in our society and should be held at a higher standard or, or should be promoted? in a greater degree than principles of other belief systems? There are more liberal religions, but those religions have had to be... That wasn't because of them. That's because their adherents became more liberal. It's because of progressivism. So, So to make the argument that the Christian religion is above all religions that ever existed, the religion of wisdom and virtue and humanity, that's inappropriate for the government to say. Of or, course, uh, and that would be totally diluted, I might add. <laughs> or, or, or to say that if you look at history, you're going to see over and over again the excellency of the Christian religion above all others. Well, who is saying this? <laughs> well, Benjamin Franklin said that, and before him, John Adams said that the Christian religion is the religion of wisdom, virtue, equity, well, and humanity. Well, actually, um, Benjamin Franklin was a deist well, in, that, uh, in the Enlightenment, he did say some things, you know, he, he wanted to pray at the Constitutional Convention, but he is considered a deist, with a capital D, well, who isn't a Christian. Now, now to be honest, I, I, I definitely have seen that argument made before. It's difficult, though, for me to accept Franklin being a deist when deism is the belief in an impersonal providence, and, and there are plenty of quotations of Franklin saying that God is the creator of the universe, he governs it, he ought to be worshipped. Well, it doesn't really matter, does it? Because... Uh, The founders of our country, it doesn't matter what the belief of one of the particular founders of our country is. What I'm suggesting to you is simply this, and I want to know if you will agree with me on this, that the founding fathers, the key founders of this republic, believed that the government should take an active role in promoting the moral character of the American people. It doesn't matter what they believed. There you go. doesn't matter what they believed. It doesn't matter what a bunch of old dead white guys believed. And even those that will take a different tack, uh, Dr. Stephen Morse, that has spent his entire existence trying, and, and he's, got a, he's a very bright guy, very smart guy, but he spent his entire life trying to convince us and writing pieces to convince us that the Founding Fathers weren't Christians. Take a look at this. He wrote this. The Christian right is trying to, trying to rewrite the history of the United States as part of its campaign to force its religion on others. They try to depict the Founding Fathers as pious Christians who wanted the United States to be a Christian nation with laws that favored Christians and Christianity. This is patently untrue. The early presidents and patriots were generally deists or Unitarians, believing in some form of impersonal providence, but, and remember this phrase, rejecting the divinity of Jesus and the absurdities of the Old and the New Testament. Well, I'll tell you something. I agree with Dr. Morris that history is being rewritten. As a teacher and as a student of history, I agree 100% that history, and particularly the history of this country, is being rewritten. We just have a fundamental disagreement on who is doing the rewriting.
Because I'll tell you, folks, when I look at what history teaches, it tells us that of the 55 men that went to the Constitutional Convention, virtually every single one was a professing Christian. By that, I mean we don't have to guess. We don't have to say, well, they were good people. They did this. They gave to charity. So they were probably Christians. No, no, no. Professing means they said it themselves. They acknowledged this is their belief system. Historical records tell us that 54 out of the 55 were members of the Christian church. 52 of those were unabashed and outspoken about their religious faith. You want the numbers? Here they are. 29 Episcopalians, 9 Presbyterians, 7 Congregationalists, 2 Lutherans, 2 Dutch Reformed, 2 Methodists, 2 Roman Catholics, 1 Quaker, and a partridge in a pear tree. Folks, they're all there. 54 out of 55. Now, I know what your logical question is. I know what your question is. Who is it? Who is that one heathen founding father? We want to know. If we got 54 out of 55, you got one out there somewhere. Who was that heathen founding father? Well, it was the venerated elder statesman by the name of Benjamin Franklin of Pennsylvania. He is well known. He's, he's oftentimes referred to this as the least religious of the founding fathers. And I have no problem saying Benjamin Franklin was the least religious of all of the founding fathers. But to term Benjamin Franklin a heathen might be a bit of a mischaracterization. Why? Because this is the same guy that called for daily prayer at the Constitutional Convention and in fact made it his practice to contribute to every Christian denomination. Why? Because he believed that Christian principle was essential for this government to survive. So to term Benjamin Franklin a heathen, I think we can conclude that the world could certainly use more heathens like Benjamin Franklin. In fact, I'm sure your minister wouldn't mind if the heathens in the community were more like Benjamin Franklin and were freely contributing because this guy is obsessed with money. I mean, I've just picked up on that. That's what he cares about most. This morning, you, you'd laugh at this, but this morning, they didn't have communion. Uh, the communion wasn't ready, but he was ready with the offering trays. I'm telling you that right now, just like that. All right, so anyway, it's nice. Normally, Brett's never here when I'm here, so now I really get to offend him in person, and that's, I've been looking forward to that for quite some time. All right, but anyway, besides, besides this new country that was founded, I want to show you some of the other organizations that our founding fathers founded. And you tell me if this is something you would expect non Christians to found. Uh, the American Tract Society, publishing biblical tracts. The American Bible Society. The American Sunday School Union. The Philadelphia, Charleston, New Jersey, Baltimore, Connecticut, Massachusetts Bible Society. The Massachusetts uh, Society, uh, uh, the Missionary Society of Connecticut. You've got the Society for Spreading the Gospel Among the Indians and Others. The American Board of Foreign Missions. The Society for Educating Youth for the Gospel Ministry. And the Society for Promoting Christian Knowledge. Then you had Alexander Hamilton's vision, which was the Christian Constitutional Society. But remember, Hamilton was killed in that duel with Aaron Burr, and that never came to fruition. Folks, call me crazy, but I don't think that a bunch of non-Christians would found organizations like this. It's typically not what you see the atheist community doing in our culture, founding organizations like this. And something else that compels me, it's the words that they spoke themselves. Take a look at this. Though not commonly recognized by many Americans today, Roger Sherman was certainly one of the most significant. The only founder who signed all four major documents in American history, the Articles of Association, the Articles of Confederation, the Declaration of Independence, and the Constitution, Sherman was the author of the Great Compromise that saved the Constitutional Convention from breaking down and splintering the Union. But Sherman's pen also authored a statement of faith for himself and his church. I believe that there is only one living and true God existing in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, the same in substance, equal in power and glory, that the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments are a revelation from God and a complete will to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy Him. 
I believe that God did send his own son to become man, die in the room instead of sinners, and thus to lay a foundation for pardon and salvation to all mankind. John Jay was the first Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court. He was also a pivotal foreign ambassador and one of three authors of the written defense of the Constitution known as the Federalist Papers. Jay wrote of his own personal faith. At a party in Paris, one asked me if I believed in Christ. I answered that I did, and that I thank God that I did. Unto him who is the author and giver of all good, I render sincere and humble thanks for his merciful and unmerited blessings, and especially for our redemption and salvation by his beloved Son. And John Jay cautioned his fellow countrymen with this remarkable admonition. Providence has given to our people the choice of their rulers, and it is the duty as well as the privilege and interest of our Christian nation to select and prefer Christians for their rulers. Alexander Hamilton was George Washington's most trusted advisor and perhaps the most academic of all the founding fathers. If you wanted to know which of the founders would score highest on the SAT, there's little question it would be Alexander Hamilton. With this analytical mind, Hamilton stated, I have carefully examined the evidences of the Christian religion, and if I was sitting as a juror upon its authenticity, I would unhesitatingly give my verdict in its favor. I can prove its truth as clearly as any proposition ever submitted to the mind of man. Alexander Hamilton's life was cut short in a duel with the scurrilous Aaron Burr, and as he lay dying, Hamilton spoke his final words. I had a tender reliance on the mercy of the Almighty through the merits of the Lord Jesus Christ. I am a sinner. I look to Him for mercy. Pray for me. Known best for his famous speech to the Second Virginia Convention in which he proclaimed, Give me liberty or give me death, Patrick Henry was a pivotal figure in colonial America. Asked about the inheritance he was leaving to his family upon his death, Henry stated plainly, This is all the inheritance I give to my dear family. The religion of Christ will give them one which will make them rich indeed. And lying on his deathbed, Henry spoke his final words to his doctor. Doctor, I wish you to observe how real and beneficial the religion of Christ is to a man about to die. I am much consoled by reflecting that the religion of Christ has, from its first appearance in the world, been attacked in vain by all the wits, philosophers, and wise ones, aided by every power of man, and its triumphs have been complete. Always in the shadow of his predecessor, George Washington, the most underrated American patriot named John Adams, played a crucial role in setting the course for the infant nation. Asked of his opinions on the Christian religion, Adams responded, the Christian religion is, above all the religions that ever prevailed or existed in ancient or modern times, the religion of wisdom, virtue, equity, and humanity. And in regard to his personal faith, Adams wrote to his friend Thomas Jefferson, The Ten Commandments and the Sermon on the Mount contain my religion. When examining the religious faith of Thomas Jefferson, a very prevalent error is to focus solely on the end of Jefferson's life an end marked by tragedy, grief, and heavy influence from anti-Christian French rationalism. Indeed, Jefferson did compose Jefferson's Bible, a compilation of the New Testament with all the divine miracles removed. And indeed, Jefferson died a man at best confused about his belief in Christ, at worst separated from him. But the Jefferson who played such a key role in shaping and forming early America 
was one who spoke highly of the doctrine and teachings of Christ. To the corruptions of Christianity I am indeed opposed, but not to the genuine precepts of Jesus. I am a Christian in the only sense in which he wished anyone to be, sincerely attached to his doctrines and preferences to all others. I am a real Christian, a disciple of the doctrines of Jesus. Had they been preached always as pure as they came from his lips, the whole civilized world would now have been Christians. I have little doubt that the whole country will soon be rallied to the unity of our Creator, and I hope to the pure doctrines of Jesus also. Though never professing a personal belief in the divinity of Christ, the older statesman Benjamin Franklin certainly was unequivocal about his belief that Christianity was essential to the preservation of the American system. He stated, History will afford the frequent opportunities of showing the excellency of the Christian religion above all others. And though commonly labeled an atheist or deist, the creed Franklin professed himself does not make either of those two even a remote possibility. Here is my creed. I believe in one God, the creator of the universe, that he governs it, that he ought to be worshiped, that the most acceptable service we render to him is in doing good to his other children. As to Jesus of Nazareth, my opinion of whom you particularly desire, I think the system of morals and religion as he left them to us is the best the world ever saw or is likely to see. Finally, the incomparable George Washington, father of his nation and perfectly dubbed first in war, first in peace, first in the hearts of his countrymen. Washington's character, wisdom, and strength laid the foundation of what would be called Americanism. And yet, as his own personal prayer journal records, Washington was acutely aware of the source of those remarkable qualities. My most glorious God, in Jesus Christ, my merciful and loving Father, direct me to the true object, Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, the life. Along with the stirring farewell address, George Washington left office with this famous, and yet today seemingly forgotten, prayer for America. Almighty God, we make our earnest prayer that Thou wilt keep the United States in Thy holy protection, dispose us all to do justice, to love mercy, and to demean ourselves with that charity, humility, and pacific temper of mind, which were the characteristics of the divine author of our blessed religion, and without a humble imitation of whose example in these things we can never hope to be a happy nation. The debate over the faith of our founding fathers is contentious only because we fail to listen to the words of the founders themselves. When we do, the truth is apparent. These architects of our government were men who revered, respected, honored, and submitted personally to the religion of Jesus Christ. You know, I look at the words of our founding fathers, and I'm amazed that this is even a controversy, to tell you the truth. I'm amazed that we can even have a discussion about it, that people can rationally argue with what is plainly in front of their faces. And yet, folks, here's a statement from the Courtsill School of Theology from R.P. Nettlehorse. Many well-meaning Christians argue that the United States was founded by Christian men on Christian principles. Although well-intentioned, such sentiment is unfounded. The men who led the United States in its revolution against England, who wrote the Declaration of Independence and put together the Constitution, were not Christians by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, there's a disconnect there. I, I, I don't have to stretch my imagination. I have to be able to read. 
I mean, not to be offensive, but it's not a stretch of the imagination to be literate. And that's what it comes down to. Folks, I believe we have the necessity upon us to confront this deception. It exists, and if we don't stand up against the deception, then our culture will make that shift from what it was to the direction that it's now going towards. Folks, the problem with that is that beliefs and ideas have consequences. The founding fathers were well aware of the various philosophies, including humanism, that they could have rooted this culture in, and they willingly chose Christian principle for a reason. We would be wise to uncover that reason before we allow our culture to go the other direction. Now, it's impossible to fully anticipate every argument you're ever going to hear, but since I've been obsessed with this over the last few years, you could pretty much confine all of the arguments into one of these five categories, that the founding fathers were deists. This is probably the biggest one. Oh, well, they were deists. And I don't think a lot of people even know what that means when they say, well, they were deists, not Christians. Or the Treaty of Tripoli. I'm sure some of you brought your Treaty of Tripoli this morning. We'll talk about that in just a second because it is such a pivotal, document. We'll talk about it. Also, misconstrued and misapplied quotations. This one will make you mad. And then the one that's my personal favorite. This is, I mean, I'll lose all control when we get here. Positions of non-founders. This one gets me very, very very excited. And then the last one, the godless document, all right? Now, I can tell that you are on pins and needles because you can't wait to plunge into these five things. This is exactly what people love. They love history, all right? So we're going to jump into this. First of all, this notion that the founding fathers were deists. Remember, you're patronizing me. Don't wipe the sleep out of your eyes. Focus right here, all right? The founding fathers were deists. In order to confront this notion that the founding fathers were deists, well, we have to know what deism is. This is the definition from Webster's. A movement or system of thought advocates natural religion, emphasizing morality in the 18th century, denying the interference of the creator with the laws of the universe. Um, boring. All right, what, what in the world does that even mean? Let me put this in plain English for you, okay? Plain English, this is what deism is. God is alpha, but he is not omega. God is alpha, but not omega. He started everything, got everything going, and then uh, wandered off. He got, got bored and wandered off somewhere, never to have further relationship with humankind. God is Alpha, but he's not Omega. That is the, you, you, you've got the watchmaker argument. You ever heard that? Uh, if you've got a watch. I don't have a watch, so it's not really that great of an example. But imagine that I did, and it's on my wrist right here. If I wound my watch up, I don't have to sit here and tick every second of the hand. That would defeat the purpose of having a watch, no? All right, this is the concept of deism, that God wound up the watch, let it go, and wandered off somewhere. And the last thing, the last thing that we should be doing is trying to pursue God, because we're never going to find him. He is not involved with the relationship, in a relationship relationship with his creation. That's the philosophy, an impersonal providence that necessarily rejects the divinity of Christ. Sorry, sorry. Okay. Um, No, we're fine. That was completely somebody that I'm going to yell out later for sending me a text and making me almost wet my pants in front of everyone. Okay, so now back to what we're saying. Focus. We're back. We're good. It is a belief in deism. I think I've just destroyed all credibility I had with the audience with that phrase right there. I'm just a little anxious. It's the belief in an impersonal providence that necessarily rejects, necessarily rejects, remember this phrase, the absurdities of the Old and the New Testament. Now, what's an absurdity of the Old and New Testament? If God is, uh, if God's parting the Red Sea, if God is having manna descend from heaven into the wilderness, if God is resurrecting people from the dead, um, that is God very much involved in his creation. That is not deism. Remember, deism is God wandered off and doesn't intervene, doesn't interfere. You cannot be a deist and believe in the miracles of God. You cannot be a deist and believe in the, it was certainly in Christ. Stop and think that one through. If you're a deist, you can't hold to the doctrines and the teachings of Jesus. You can't do it because the teaching of Jesus was that I'm the son of God and I've come down here to do what? To die a miserable death on a wretched cross to reconcile your soul to God for all eternity. 
pretty sure that's God being involved with, with mankind, okay? Uh, this is not deist mentality. You cannot have, just like you can't have a Christian and a Muslim, you can't have the same beliefs, even though the Episcopalian Church, if you've seen this last week, has now ordained a woman, actually she was already ordained, and uh, she's converted to Islam. But the head of the Episcopalian Church said that he didn't really see why that would cause a problem with her remaining the bishop of the Episcopalian Church. No, I mean, she's just worshiping Allah. I mean, no big deal there. This is stunning, right? Because you can't have a Christian and a Muslim. The two religions are antithetical. Same thing with deism. You can't have a Christian and a deist because they're fundamentally opposed to one another. So how do we refute this argument? Now, there is indication that some of the early founding fathers dabbled in deist mentality. Certainly, deism is a major force that comes off the Enlightenment. It was a huge teaching. The founding fathers were smart guys that studied a lot of what the major political philosophies were. Jefferson and Franklin, you'll see this in some of their writing, deist mentality in there. But Jefferson, remember, takes this path long after he's influenced American government, after he's been over in France for a long period of time. And Franklin, I acknowledge willingly and readily that he never accepted the divinity, or at least professed the divinity of Christ. He never believed in the divinity of Christ. But to consider him a deist, do you remember the quotes that you just saw in the video, that God governs in the affairs of men? That's not a deist. The, the opening video, that how can an empire rise without his aid? Folks, that's not deism. Deism is the belief that God isn't anywhere to help out humankind. We're never going to find him, and you can't worship a creator that's not even there. That's deist mentality, and it's not Benjamin Franklin's mentality. As for the other founding fathers, good luck finding something in the historical record to support the notion that they're deists. It's simply not there. These men attended Christian churches where they weakly repeated the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. You've got numerous founding fathers who were the elders of their Christian Christian church. Now, I don't know a lot about church structure back in those days, but I'm pretty sure you don't make elders of your Christian church a bunch of deists that don't even believe in the doctrines of Christianity. Call me crazy, but you're probably not going to make the leaders of your church those individuals. The founding fathers, this is what we ignore all the time. They were learned men. They're wise men. They're scholars. They studied political philosophy, the writings of antiquity. Washington wrote about Greek mythology. That doesn't mean that on the weekends he was out worshiping Zeus and Poseidon, okay? Just because they write about these things certainly doesn't mean that that is their core beliefs. What are their core beliefs, folks? The reality is, in terms of their personal faith, I believe we should let them speak for themselves and not try to supplant their beliefs with what we want to project upon them as to believing. What were their words? You've already seen many of them. What about Madison? Freedom to embrace, to profess, to observe the Christianity, which we believe to be of divine origin. John Hancock, in circumstances as these, it behooves us as men and as Christians. Uh, Benjamin Rush, Christianity is the only true and perfect religion. Folks, let them speak for themselves, and you'll find the evidence. These men were not deists. What about the Treaty of Tripoli? All right, this is very exciting. Treaty of Tripoli. Get out your copy if you've got it. I'm going to have to ask that you remain seated in the back. Please don't get up anymore. You're distracting me. All right, now, here we go. Treaty of Tripoli. Treaty of Tripoli. Let's talk about the Treaty of Tripoli. Uh, I can't tell you how many times uh, Jenny at home will get my copy of the Treaty of Tripoli, and she'll take it to some place in the house, and she'll be reading it, and she always leaves it somewhere where I can't find it. And when I'm looking for it, this is sarcasm right? Nobody ever does this. What's the point I'm trying to make? It's always, it's always good when you have to tell people you're laying down the sarcasm. That means they're picking up on it really good. But anyway, what's the point I'm trying to make? This is a pretty obscure document. I'm guessing a lot of you probably have never heard of the Treaty of Tripoli. The reason I have is because I'm a nerd and I look at things like this. What is the Treaty of Tripoli? Well, those that seek to destroy this notion of a Christian founding, they will 
oftentimes cite Article 11 of the English translation. It's not in the original. The English translation of Article 11 of the Treaty of Tripoli of 1797. And they love this quote. Why? Look at what it says. The government of the United States is not in any sense founded upon the Christian religion. And they, I mean, they, they think this is the smoking gun. They will parade this around. They will lose all control of their bodily functions. And they'll say, see, this is proof that the founding fathers were not Christians. They were secularists. And they founded this government to be completely secular, completely isolated from anything that had to do with religion. Absolutely, without question, smoking gun, proof beyond a shadow of a doubt. Now, I've got to tell you, this is kind of humorous to me because this is one quote from a pretty obscure treaty, but that's irreconcilable. I mean, this is unquestionable. This is irrefutable proof. But I can back a semi-tractor trailer up with thousands of quotations and dump them at their feet, and that's just right-wing propaganda is all that is. So you got one quote over here compared to a thousand over here, but that's all made up. This one is what they really thought. But you know what? I'm not an argumentative guy. I'm not Brett, so I'm just going to go with it, all right? We'll just take a look at this. Yeah, buddy. All right, we're just going to take a look at this. Is this true? Is this accurate? Well, what was the Treaty of Tripoli all about? This is a word that we might want to learn. It's called context. It might be helpful if we actually looked at what was going on in the Treaty of Tripoli to really understand it. The Treaty of Tripoli was signed in 1797. Our government is trying to ease tensions with five Muslim nations that are, that are attacking our merchant ships. Whenever our trade ships go near them, they attack them, and they were killing Americans, and this was a big problem. So we want a treaty with them. Well, what was the problem that these Muslims had with us? What was causing the big stink? Well, these Muslim countries have witnessed the Crusades. You remember the Crusades when the European Christian countries would go into these Muslim countries, say, you want Jesus? Nope. Shink. And they killed them because that's the sound that a sword makes when you shink. So anyway, this is, uh, this is what the European Crusades were all about. Evangelizing with the sword. So you got these Muslim nations then that see this new merchant ship come in and they say, wait a minute, those people look like Europeans and they talk like Europeans and they have the same religion as a European. They smell like Europeans. I'm guessing they're probably going to do the exact same thing that these other... We don't want that influence anywhere around us. And for that reason, they started launching attacks on our ships because they saw them as a threat to their security. Now, what's the truth? Was the United States trying to evangelize with the sword? No, we weren't interested in that at all. We wanted to trade. That's what we wanted. So we decided, in the interest of both parties, let's broker a treaty so that they understand we're not like those European countries that believed it was their governmental duty to export Christianity with gunpowder. That's not what we're all about. That's not the way this government operates. And so we broker this treaty. It happened under Washington. It was approved under President Adams. And that's probably why you'll oftentimes see people attribute the quote to both of them, even though they never really said it. It was in the treaty. But that's probably why. Article 11, which again does not exist in the original. It's only in the English translation. Simply sought to assure these Muslim nations the United States is not like those other European countries. We're not like the crusade kind of countries. Our government didn't function that way. Listen very carefully. Our church and state were separate. Folks, there is nothing wrong with that phrase. In fact, if you really understand what the Founding Fathers meant with separating church and state, it's an ingenious idea. Brett's job and President Obama's job are two different things. The Founding Fathers understood, though, that both of them are accountable to the same moral authority. They're both accountable for their actions to the same biblical creator. Okay? Now, we don't have that understanding anymore. We believe that Brett's job is to follow the creator, President Obama's job, he's completely isolated. We're not looking for the separation of church and state anymore. We're isolating church and state. You come back next Sunday morning, I'll give you court cases and we'll see this. I won't wear a tie because if I did, my head will explode because it really gets me worked up, all right? So that's next week. We'll see how we've completely twisted this notion into isolating church from state. But our founding fathers believed the two have different duties and responsibilities. It's not the job of government to force people into the baptistry. And that's what they were getting across with this quote in the Treaty of Tripoli. And one 
once you read this thing in context, it's not nearly that smoking gun, irrefutable proof that the left would have you believe that it is. I got to tell you, it's also humorous to me to see the humanist point to this treaty as irrefutable. I mean, this is clear indication that the founding fathers weren't Christian. They hated Christian principles in government. It's just obvious. They do this with a straight face while simultaneously they ignore the most fundamental, most pivotal, most crucial, most absolutely important treaty of this time period. We signed it in 1783. It was called the Treaty of Paris. It's the one that gave us our independence. It's the peace treaty we signed with Britain that made us a country. I mean, a little bit more important, quite frankly, than the Treaty of Tripoli, but the humanists will completely ignore it. You know what the opening line of this treaty is? Uh, The Treaty of Paris, 1783, the one that gives us our independence? This is the opening line. First line, not Article 11. First line, in the name of the most holy and indivisible trinity. Folks, our entire claim, sovereign claim to independence, rests on the authority of the indivisible trinity. Okay, I think that's somewhat worth noting, that the Founding Fathers would root it in something principle like that. But somehow these humanists are going to have us believe that Article 11 of some obscure treaty that's brokered with Muslim nations to secure freedom of the seas for our merchant ships is more indicative of the belief of our Founding Fathers than the most fundamental, basic, crucial, pivotal treaty that came from this time period. I'm just not buying it. I, I, don't, I, I can't believe that. That's just absurd logic to come to that conclusion. So then we get to this one. Misapplied quotations. Misconstrued quotations. This is pretty amazing. I, I, I wish I could tell you every quote that you're ever going to see uh, that says the founding fathers weren't Christians, but I can't anticipate every one that you're going to see. But I will tell you that some of them are going to be, uh, they're going to appear pretty intimidating. I mean, they're going to appear pretty convincing and, and uh, you're, you're going to sit there and think, oh, well, this isn't good. Well, let, me, let me encourage you. If you don't want to take the time to research it contact somebody who gets into this stuff send me an email i would love it because this stuff just makes me happy and i guarantee you what you're going to find is 100 percent of the time what you're dealing with is a quote that has been ripped out of context it's been misconstrued it's been misapplied we've already seen an example of this with the treaty of tripoli it's a misattributed quote they say washington said it they say hamilton said it no it's in the english translation of a treaty okay so we've already seen that example let me give you an example of a deliberately deceptive quotation that I received at my radio program one day. A guy emailed this to me. This was the quote that he wanted me to answer. The doctrines that flowed from the lips of Jesus himself are nonsense and can never be explained. Thomas Jefferson. Let me tell you, when I saw that, I thought, well, that's going to be a handful. I wonder why Jefferson was saying this. So I start looking for the quote, and I can't find it, and I can't find it. And I actually started believing, I bet this Yahoo just made this thing up, and he's got me out here searching for hours and hours, and this thing doesn't even really exist. Well, the truth is that it does exist, because I contacted him. I said, can you give me a source for this? I can't find the quote. This was cited in a secular humanist publication, supposedly coming from a letter from Thomas Jefferson to John Adams. The two guys were rivals, but they became friends, and they wrote back all the time in their later years, back and forth. I'll tell you, this is supposedly indicating how Jefferson loathed Christian principle, but what it actually stands as, it's an incredible indication of how far the left will go to deceive, to completely warp, twist, and rewrite the cultural foundations of America. Let me show you the quote in its entirety. This is the actual quote in the letter from Jefferson to Adams. The Christian priesthood, finding the doctrines of Christ leveled to every understanding and too plain to need explanation, saw in the mysticisms of Plato materials with which they might build up an artificial system which might, from its indistinctness, admit everlasting controversy give employment for their order and introduce it the priesthood to profit power and preeminence now is when you need to start paying attention the doctrines which flowed from the lips of jesus himself are within the comprehension of a child but thousands of volumes have not yet explained the platonisms engrafted on them and for this obvious reason that nonsense can never be explained you see what they've done 
We've taken two sections of a sentence, ripped them out of context, pieced them together with a dot, 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 and completely changed the intentions of Thomas Jefferson. Folks, I want you to imagine doing this with another passage. You remember this one in Matthew 22? Jesus said to him, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and prophets. Now let's say I use the same scholarly approach that the left does, and I take certain portions of this quotation out, and I piece them together, and I get this. Jesus said to him, This is the first and greatest greatest commandment hang all the prophets i'm pretty sure folks i'm pretty sure that i'm not representing scripture accurately this is a misrepresentation of what jesus was trying to say let me tell you ripping portions of quotations out of context and fitting them together simply so that they fulfill your own political agenda folks that's not scholarly it's not ethical it's not uh, it's not reputable but it is one of the tactics of the humanist left This is how desperate they are to rewrite the foundations of the United States. These are the depths to which they will sink to do it. I want you to look at this quote, and I'm not going to go through it piece by piece and bore you all to death, but let's sum it up. What is Jefferson saying? He's saying the doctrines of Jesus don't need explanation. A kid can understand the doctrines of Jesus. He taught so simply, anybody can wrap their mind around what Jesus is teaching. Well, who got upset about that? Well, the priesthood got upset because they thought if everybody can understand it, well, they don't need us to explain it to them. And they became unimportant. So what did the priesthood do in response? They go out and they get all of these teachings of Plato and these things that people don't understand, and they pile them on top of Scripture. Everybody gets confused. And then, once you're confused, who do you need to explain it to you? You need the priesthood. Introducing the priesthood to profit, power, and preeminence. That was their purpose. What is Jefferson's argument in this quote? We need to get back to the pure doctrines of Jesus. It's a little bit of a far stretch, is it not, from what the left is suggesting, that the doctrines of Jesus are nonsense? Then we get to this, my personal favorite, the position of non-founders. Every so often, the left will find somebody that they believe, a, a colonial writer or somebody that they believe is a founding father. They'll grab a hold of them because they like what they're saying. And they'll trumpet them as obvious proof that the founding fathers weren't Christians. And this usually ends up with the left being pretty embarrassed. And that's why I love it when they do this. All right, absolutely love this. And it's so true with Thomas Paine. Thomas Paine is the poster child for the secular humanist left. They love this guy. I don't know how many of you know who Thomas Paine is. Thomas Paine, a brief history of him, he, he was a revolutionary. He became popular in the American colonies because he wrote a pamphlet called Common Sense. It urged rebellion to the British crown. Again, this is a revolutionary kind of guy. And if you've ever read the pamphlet, it's great. I mean, it'll fire you up. You'll be ready to go fight a war when you get done. The last line is, the blood of the slain, the weeping voice of nature cries, tis time to depart. Oh, that's good stuff. So anyway, you you read this pamphlet. That's what Thomas Paine is all about. He's this revolutionary, and he's encouraging rebellion to the British crown. Well, we rebel against the British crown, and we break free from them. But as soon as the revolution is over, eh, Thomas Paine kind of gets bored. I mean, there's nothing to rebel against anymore. So he decides, if I'm a revolutionary, where's the best place to go? Well, where they have a revolution every other day. Let's go to France. So he goes over to France. This is the whole era of the French Revolution, where literally, if you've ever studied that history, you have one group that comes to power, then another group comes up and guillotines those people out of existence, and they're the group in power, and then another group comes up and guillotines those people out of existence, and they're in power. It's a constant revolution over and over and over again. If you've seen that uh, uh, musical, the... uh, Yes, Less Miserables, that one, yes. If you've seen that one, um, that's how you properly pronounce it, in case you're wondering, because as you're sitting watching it, you are miserable. But anyway, 
Um, so you've got this, uh, th that whole musical tells the story of the French Revolution. So Payne goes over there and he gets in one of these groups and that's great while they're in power but then when the new group comes in, Payne ends up in jail and he's sitting there rotting in jail and thinking, well this is nuts, I don't want to be around this. So as soon as he gets out, he goes back to the United States and nobody remembers him. Nobody likes him, nobody really talks to him and so Payne decides he's going to get some of that popularity back. He's going to get it back by writing another pamphlet and, and spreading it throughout the colonies. He calls it the Age of Reason. The Age of Reason is heavily influenced by what was going on in France, the rationalism there in France that is very anti-Christian. And Payne puts this piece together. Let me show you some of the, uh, uh, some of the clips or the, the words, the uh, excerpts from the Age of Reason. I would not dare to so dishonor my Creator God by attaching His name to that book, meaning the Bible. He said, Among the most detestable villains in history, you could not find one worse than Moses. It is the duty of every true deist to vindicate the moral justice of God against the evils of the Bible. The Christian church has set up a religion of pomp and revenue and pretended imitation of a person, Jesus, who lived in abject poverty. Payne wrote, I do not believe in the creed professed by the Jewish church, by the Roman church, by the Greek church, by the Turkish church, by the Protestant church, nor by any church that I know of. Look at this last line. My own mind is my own church. Folks, can you find a better description of what the modern left thinks in our culture today? My own mind's my own church. I make up my own truth, my own reality, and you can't go shoving your morals off on me. I make up truth for myself. I would have loved to have tried to use that line on my dad. I make up reality for myself, Father, and therefore uh, I'm afraid your punishments are just not good here. I'm sure that would have gone over really, really well. But this is the core philosophy of the modern secular humanist left. You see why they love Thomas Paine? Because he is quoting exactly what they believe. That my own mind is my own church. Well, it would be fair to say that Thomas Paine is not a big supporter of the Christian system as it existed in the United States. But do you not see something implicit in this argument as well? It's another one of those oops moments. The fact that Paine is railing against the Christian system as it existed in the United States is only proof of what? It's proof of the fact that the Christian system existed in the United States. If it wasn't here, if we did not have a cultural foundation rooted in Christianity, Thomas Paine would have nothing to be so upset about. And yet, because he's making these arguments and the left is quoting him, they are undermining their own argument that this was never our foundation. But it gets even better than this. What does the humanist crowd say? They, they adore pain. They love pain. And they point to him and they say, see, the founding fathers weren't Christians. Look at what Thomas Paine said. Now I'll tell you something. That is about as compelling an argument as you can possibly make. That argument is stunningly solid except for two little flaws. Number one, Paine wasn't a founder. And number two, the actual founders hated everything the man said. But other than that, that is a profoundly strong argument, all right? Let me, let me, let me show you what I'm talking about here. Uh, when Thomas Paine wrote The Age of Reason, you know how when you write a book, some of you maybe have written a book, you, you send it out to people who are popular or people that are well-known, and they read the book, and then they give you a quote, and then you put it on your jacket cover and all of that. Well, that's what, that's what Thomas Paine decided to do. He wasn't as popular as he used to be, so he sent it to some of the key founding fathers, some of the key figures in American society, looking for a response, trying to create a buzz so that he could sell a lot of copies of this pamphlet. Here's what the founding fathers had to say. He sent it to John Witherspoon, who said, Paine is ignorant of human nature as well as an enemy to the Christian faith. Probably not going to put that one on the jacket cover, would be my guess. It's not exactly what you're looking for. So he decides, well, I'm going to send it to another one. He's going to send it over to Sam Adams, who, when he wasn't brewing beer, took time to say this. I felt myself much astonished and grieved that you had attempted a measure so injurious to the feelings and so repugnant to the true interests of the citizens of the United States. Do you think your pen, or the pen of any other man, can, look at this, unchristianize the mass of our citizens? What does that necessarily imply? That the mass of our citizens were Christians. 
Okay, the mass of our unchristianized, the mass of our citizens, or have you hopes of converting a few of them to assist you in so bad a cause? So we can't go with Sam Adams. So he sends it off to John Quincy Adams, who responds and says, Mr. Payne has departed altogether from the principles of the revolution. So he's getting shot down everywhere he goes. So what is he going to do? Well, I mean, this is just logical. Thomas Paine says, I've got to go to my go-to guy, the least religious of all of the founding fathers, remember, Benjamin Franklin, that heathen. He's going to give me a good report on this. So he sends the age of reason to Benjamin Franklin, the least religious of the founding fathers who responds and says this at present i shall only give you my opinion that he that spits in the wind spits in his own face i would franklin goes on and says i would advise you to burn this piece before it is seen by any other person i mean folks this is not exactly a ringing endorsement for your work this is what the founding fathers thought of what thomas paine had to say they were his thoughts were rejected by every founding father who read them so much so, it's kind of a sad story. Payne later regrets having written The Age of Reason. This is what he wrote later. I would give worlds if I had them, if The Age of Reason had never been published. Oh, Lord, help, stay with me. It is hell to be left alone. And how alone was Thomas Paine? He died an outcast. He was buried in a field because there was not a cemetery in the United States that would accept his remains. Folks, listen to me. The Quakers denied this man a burial. And when you've ticked off the Quakers, you've accomplished something. I'm telling you that right now. Every founding father that saw this man's ideas rejected them. Here's the simple facts. Thomas Paine was not a founder. He had no influence on the founding documents in any way, shape, or form. And the guys that actually did all rejected his beliefs. Now think through this. The ironic thing is that the left quotes Paine. Why? Because Paine represents their beliefs. Paine and them are on the same page. He is their poster child. But if the founders rejected Paine's beliefs and Paine and the modern secular humanist left have the same beliefs, what does that tell us about the way the founding fathers would regard the beliefs of the modern secular humanist left? He that spits in the wind spits in his own face. Folks, you don't have to take my word for it. We have proof. We have evidence. Finally, we get to this, the godless constitution. This is what we always hear. Folks, whenever you're having this conversation and you're bombarding them with the truth of the founding fathers' faith, uh, faith, the secular left will eventually retreat and they'll start making some of the most ridiculous, absurd arguments. And one of the most hopeless goes like this. Well, the constitution doesn't have the word God in it, so it, it's not Christian in any way. It's not a Christian document. It's not a godly document because the word God isn't in it. Let me advise you, if you get to the point in an argument when somebody's quoting this, the best thing to do is to pack your bag and walk away. Because once you've, once you've gotten down to this kind of juvenile logic, you're going to end up that conversation. Uh, no, nothing that you say is going to matter. You're going to want to throw yourself through a stained glass window by the time it's all over. I'm just advising you. But if you were to decide to continue to have this conversation, you really want to engage these intellectual giants that make these arguments, I would advise that you start with something like this. The word liberty, the word freedom, the word democracy... It doesn't appear anywhere in the Constitution. So by your logic, that means the Constitution is anti-freedom, anti-democracy, anti-liberty. In fact, friends, the words separation of church and state don't appear anywhere in any of the founding documents. In fact, those of you that are coming back tonight, which I'm, I'm guessing maybe two of you may come back tonight. If you come back tonight, I, this is my challenge to you. Bring a founding document. If you can find the word separation of church and state in it, and folks, I'm talking any state constitution, the national constitution, the Bill of Rights, the Declaration of Independence, Articles of Association, Articles of Confederation, any founding document, you bring it tonight with the word separation of church and state in it, I will eat the document in front of everyone before we start. I guarantee you that is my promise to you. That is how convinced I am you're not going to find these words. And yet, what does the left tell us? The left 
tells us that this is one of the most sacrosanct, the most sacred of all constitutional principles, the separation of church and state. Well, how is that possible if the words aren't in it? Because remember, the left's logic is, if God's not written into the document, then it must not be in any way, shape, or form a godly foundation of the culture. Folks, I don't know if you've ever read the Constitution, but if you're reading the Constitution thinking you're going to be inspired, yikes. I mean, you're going to fall asleep. This thing is the blueprint for the way government works. I teach it every semester, and this is not scintillating reading. It is not a page-turner, all right? This is literally saying, and the officers shall be chosen annually or biannually. These people will serve for this many years, and these people will hold this position, and they will hold this position in times of good behavior. Blah, blah, blah. This is a blueprint for the way, for the, way the government is going to work. It's not a fundamental creed of Americanism. So we shouldn't expect to find the word God in it. It'd be kind of bizarre if the word God was in it. And these people shall be chosen annually, God, and they will serve until... I mean, it just wouldn't fit. It'd just be bizarre sticking in there. We shouldn't expect it. But I tell you what, if you want to know whether the Constitution's a godly document, don't just go superficially looking for the word God. Actually look at some of the studies. In fact, the most comprehensive study that was ever done on the U.S. Constitution was done by a very non-religious organization. It's called the American Political Science Association. Uh, I, I, being a part of this association can tell you this is not like the Bible Baptist Academy here in Terre Haute, all right? This is not a Christian organization in the least. They did the study in the 1980s. They wanted to know where did the founding fathers get their ideas when they founded American government? Where did they get the idea of a three-branch governing system? Where did they get the idea for tax exemption status for certain uh, charities? Where did they get these ideas? They took about 15,000 writings of the Founding Fathers, categorized them into a group of 3,154, and tied them back to their original source. You know what they found? In this study, they found that 34% of, of constitutional theory is directly quoted from the Bible. When the Founding Fathers were giving these ideas, for instance, the three-branch governing system, go home and read Isaiah 33:22, that God is the lawgiver, he's the king, he's the judge. Lawgiver, legislative, king, executive, judge, judicial. That's where he got the idea. The Founding Fathers got the ideas. 34% directly attributable to the Bible. Another 60% they found. And this floored the APSA. They couldn't believe it. University of Houston helped out in the study. Couldn't believe it. Another 60% is indirectly quoting the Bible. What do I mean by that? A major source for the Founding Fathers was uh, Sir William Blackstone. He was the leading legal authority. If you ever read Blackstone's commentaries on the law, he gives the law of man and then right next to it the scripture reference where he got his idea. So when the founding fathers quote Blackstone, they are indirectly quoting scripture. 94% of constitutional theory comes from biblical law. Now is that because the founding fathers were trying to force people into the baptistry with the law? Of course not. Read the First Amendment. The purpose is the founding fathers said, where are the best principles upon which to build the laws of man? The laws of God. That's the logical answer to that question. This was never intended to be a document that was declaring the creed or the philosophical basis of America. You know that document. If you had to pick one and say, this is our founding document, it's the Declaration of Independence. That is a creed upon which we stand as a civilization. Four direct references to Almighty God in that document. If you really want to know the philosophical basis for America. And the children are now arriving. All right, so let's wind this down, folks. Let's get this done. The evidence is compelling. Absolutely compelling. If we're willing to look at it, it's compelling evidence. The founding fathers were men of faith. No question that they were men of faith. Why do I know that? Because I'm looking at what they say themselves. And not only, folks, was their faith a matter of conscience between them and God. This is the huge part. They believed that those thoughts and ideas and beliefs that they had in Christianity they could actually be used to influence the formation of a new system of government and a new culture and a new society. 
What have we accomplished this morning? Well, we've accomplished the simple proof that the founding fathers were not deists or Unitarians. They were not atheists. They were not skeptics. They were believers in Christianity. But that certainly doesn't mean that they took that belief and they used it at the formation of American government. They could have had that personal belief but then kept it completely out of the government they created. And that's actually some of the arguments that you hear. I will contend to you that Christianity's impact on our culture cannot be overstated. When you look at the state constitutions, when you look at some of the key founding documents and the key uh, original principles in the colonies, you cannot get around the reality that these people used intentionally Christian principle at the foundation of our way of life. Why does it matter? Well, because the core foundation that they gave us has led to the great prosperity and success that we've seen. And if we're going to change from that, we might want to know what's on the other side of the fence. We might want to know what the consequences of that belief system will be. I know history is the most exciting subject for everyone, but I do appreciate your attention this morning. If you come back tonight, we're going to look at that core question. All right, this was their belief, these were their beliefs, but did it influence the government they created? Or did they isolate one from the other? We'll look at the facts. We'll look at the history. I'll show you state constitutions that I guarantee you've never seen, and you will not believe that these words were actually at one point in these documents. You'll be so excited. You won't even be able to stand it. You'll just probably tear your clothes and sit in sackcloth and ashes. All right. Would you pray with me as we close? Father God, I thank you so much for this morning. I thank you for these people that have made it here. And uh, God, I thank you so much for this country. I thank you for this civilization and the opportunity to live here with the freedom to worship as we choose. And Lord, we know that didn't happen by accident. It didn't happen by a fluke. It happened because those that went before us, came before us, rooted our culture in something concrete, something absolute, something unchanging in your word. Father, we've strayed from that in so many ways, and I pray just now you would begin to give us the motivation and the desire to see us change back, to find our way back to what you desire for this civilization. Pray that you go with us from this place, bring us back here safely tonight, and for all things we give you, all the honor and all the praise and all the glory, because you are worthy of it. And everyone said, amen. God bless you, and I hope to see you tonight. Thanks for visiting. We hope you've been encouraged. Please feel free to visit us online at clcchurch.com.